0: If you turn over to Genesis chapter one, there's a, a rule that is that is known among pilots. My son's studying to be a pilot right now, and it's a rule that says that for every every mile you go, if you're just one degree off, you'll miss your destination by ninety two feet. It's actually formally called the uh, one in 60 uh, principle or rule. Uh, and they measure it, pilots measure it, the idea of for every one degree you're off, you'll be one mile off course after traveling 60 miles. You see, at first, the idea of 92 feet, it's not that big of a deal because you think, well, if I'm near an airport, 92 feet, I'm high enough up, I'm going to be able to spot it if I'm just a little bit off. But as you think about the application of the rule, it has the idea that the longer you go, the more you'll be off. Hence the idea of the one in 60. So when we think about that and we apply that to just thinking about flying, getting to where you want to go, the destination, your flight path, let's apply this to some other locations. If you wanted to go from JFK to LAX in California. Let's say you're just one degree off. The implication of this rule would be that you'll miss LAX by 40 miles. And the real problem with that is you'll miss it into the Pacific Ocean. And planes are terrible boats. Apply it again to another flight. Let's say you're going from JFK to Tokyo International. Little over 14 hours, uh, one degree off, where would that put you? That would uh, put you 112 miles away from Tokyo and in the Sea of Japan. The principle here is not that when you look at the idea of one degree, what's the big deal? The idea is if you let yourself be one degree off, give it enough time, you'll be way off destination, way off destination. So in the fall, as a church, we come back and we want to answer what exactly is our destination. And therefore, then we can evaluate our flight path. You see, a pilot's not so much concerned about the destination as much as his flight path relative to his destination. His destination is fixed, but the variable in the journey is the flight. It's the direction. How much do you lean off that? How much are you on that? The same is exactly true for the church. The same is true for your life. I'm not telling you anything new. This is obvious stuff. But the question we have to ask ourselves this morning as a church is what is the mission of God? And then see the mission of God in relationship to our flight path. In other words, what's our orientation toward that? Are we off? Because given enough time, even if you're off by one degree, you'll miss your destination completely. So that's why it's important as a church to come back and push everything off the table and say, why do we exist? How do we relate to God? What's his mission? Where are we at as a group? Where are we as as individuals? Because we don't want to get this wrong. And so therefore, that idea of, Destination Determines Direction is center in our minds this morning. Uh, I'm not going to tell you things necessarily that are brand new to you. Some of you heard some of these things before. But it's not to discover more information. I'd ask you to evaluate yourself. Evaluate your flight path. In light of what we're going to talk about today, the mission of God. What is the mission of God? Why is there something versus nothing How do you relate to that? How do we as a church relate? How does Jesus coming relate? How does the very creation of the world relate to this? It's very important because I'll tell you I'm concerned. And again, this is nothing new. Church in America is way off flight path when it comes to this subject. Let me give you some statistics that frankly shocked me. 2017, there was a report done in regard to the Great Commission. Half of churchgoers did not know what the term Great Commission related to in the Bible. Now, these are professing evangelical Christians. Half! 2017. 2018, uh, there was a study done called Translating the Great Commission... And only 17% of regular attenders could identify and then define the Great Commission. Only 17%. So think about it. People that are going to evangelical churches. Only 17 could identify it and then define the Great Commission. I think that's incredibly tragic. Now, let's stop here could you identify instead of going ah, they got to get their act together let's not travel outside the confines of your seat could you where's the great commission located what does it mean what are the implications for your life it goes on um there was a study done in 2020 um among us christians self professing now this is broader that 63% said they had never heard of the Great Commission. When asked to list off five scriptures, they were given multiple choice of which one of these is the Great Commission. 31%, uh, one in three could do so correctly. That's already having a multiple choice of five options. 31% could get it, the rest of them guessed wrong. Matter of fact, 90% of Americans who call themselves believers in the gospel of Christ, very specific, Only 9% of those people made agreement to the following ideas, that there's an absolute moral truth, that the Bible is completely accurate in the principles that it teaches, that Satan is real. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or by doing good works. Jesus Christ lived a a sinless life on earth. God is an all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. Only 9% would agree with those statements. There are variations and agreements on those things. Now you might think, as I did, you would think that's a, that's a layup, you know? That's easy pickings. That's a, that's a walk. What's happened? I think the destination of why we exist as the church has been obscured. Some people have changed it. This is what the church is supposed to be. This is what the church is supposed to be about. And because of that, the flight path of people is off from the original destination envisioned by God when he created the world. That could be the only answer because then the time is filling up with all sorts of stuff so that these types of answers get lost. These types of realities in the minds of people get obscured. That's the only way I can reconcile. So as a church, we want to be vigilant. We want to be clear. Vigilant as it relates to what the destination is, and clear as it how it relates to you, to us. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in getting that wrong, if God intends for us to get it right. So there's four questions that I'm going to ask this morning. Each of these questions are intended for us to adjust our flight path as it relates to the destination that these questions will be pointing to. Uh, Very quickly, you have it on your teaching guide. We're going to go through them. But why did God create the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? Why does the church exist? And then why do you exist? Very quickly again, why did God create the world? Why did Jesus come into the world? Why does the church exist? Why do you exist? As we start off that first point, why did God create the world? Uh, This is a destinational kind of talk. Uh, whatever God was motivated to do in creating the world is important for you to know, important for me to know, because it relates to his motivation. Now, there's a great statement in the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession that, that boils down uh, some things we're going to look at this morning, but I want to give it to you, because it makes sense. When we think of the meta-story of the Bible, it has the idea of asking the question, What is the chief end of man? we put that in contemporary terms why do you exist another way what is your purpose now if i ask you that question in your mind what would you say real quick yeah you know in your mind in your mind keep it in your mind wow we've got a live crowd today quick have an altar call No. catechism is supposed to be this question answer thank you for participating let me give you what they said The chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever man that's like bo jackson hitting a deep one out of the park that answer that's fantastic that's true absolutely true we're supposed to glorify god what does that mean you make much of him his renown who he is is worthy to follow, to trust, to believe, to hope in, all of those things. We say here at Grace Fellowship that we want to spread the fame of God. That's the idea of glory. We want to spread his fame. We want to see him as he is meant to be famous. He's to be known. He's to be revered. He's to, be, to stand in awe of him. We're going to spread his fame. Now, if you're in Genesis chapter 1, I would like to give you four destinational points from this idea of why did God create the world. It's very, very important for you to know because the destination that God puts forward in the book of Genesis is going to be the destination of humanity. Absolutely is. Now, some people are going to make it and some people aren't. But this will become the reality of realities someday. And we begin to see, and I'd like to draw your attention to, four particular truths that are in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that help shape that idea of glorify God and enjoy Him forever or spread the fame, how His fame was envisioned to be spread from the very beginning. The first would be this, is if you look in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, there's this phrase, and if you've been to Taste of Grace, you've heard it because we've unpacked this. Uh, This idea of God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, if you've hung out in church long enough, you say, well, that's easy. I get that. Let's consider the implications of that. The idea that you are stamped, that humanity is stamped in the image of God can mean all sorts of things, but it doesn't mean anything less than the idea of you have an intellect, you have emotions, you have will. You're made for a purpose. You see, God stamps humanity with his image so that as humanity would exist on this earth, God would look, think about it in an anthropomorphic way, that God would look at Adam and he would see his image radiating back. He would see an image of himself as he's created him radiating back and necessarily God would be glorified. Not because of anything that Adam had done, but just because Adam is. Now, if you tease this out, as we will, the idea of God originally creating humanity was that so humanity, the earth would be completely full of image bearers so that he would look again in a human way. He'd look at the earth. What would he see? He would see himself in humanity, Radiating back, like looking in a mirror. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? You see you. God would see himself as perfection. And then what we would do, we would find our joy in that, not because of anything we have done, but because we are reflectors, reflecting the glory of God. We would find our joy in that. We would find our being and we would enjoy him. We would be as we are created to be and he would be glorified. His fame would be obvious. You see, when you read the idea that we're made in God's image, that's not a, a detail so much as it pictures a destination. This is what God intended. He didn't do this with any other creature on this earth. He did it with humanity. So as we think about this, why did God create the world? First point, underneath that, the first idea is we're made in God's image. The second point, and these four almost work like legs on a table. The second would be this. Look at verse 26. Right after that, I think it's made to rule as God's representative. Under the heading of the first question, why did God create the world? First is made in God's image. Second is the made to rule as God's representative. Look at 26. After the idea of likeness, let them have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other, and every, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, other we represent as image bearers God in the creation. And how we go is how creation goes. Now, this is not going to be any kind of a drifting into some ecologically friendly message. I just want to point out the reality that we are to represent. And so whatever happens to us happens to the world that we live in. Happens to the things that we're called to rule. We represent. We are effectively a great word. We are God's viceroys in this world. So whatever happens to the image bearer affects everything. Third. We're made for relationships. So the first made in God's image, second made to rule as God's representative, third made for relationship. And you might say, well, I get that, but w- how do you get that from the text? Look over at Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now that issue of a garden, uh, you might think like I do, because I have a garden, I think of uh, tomatoes. I think of um, zucchini. I think of basil. Some people call it basil, but I like... It's a sophisticated term, basil. You think of all sorts of stuff. Matter of fact, in my garden right now, uh, I'm growing ghost peppers. Some of you know about this. Uh, don't think for a minute I eat that stuff. Um, I'm growing that for other people because I want to see somebody eat those ghost peppers. <laughs> Let's not get into my personal problems. But um, I think of that when I think of a garden. It's not what God thinks about. God's not looking for us to produce vegetables. Okay, he's not worried about that. This idea of garden represents relationship. If you think about it, what exactly happened to um, Adam and Eve after the fall? God came looking for them where? In the garden. Uh, They were removed from where? After they fell from the garden. This idea of garden has the idea of relationship. That's where in the Eastern culture relationships would flourish. Just like people walk with one another up and down the sidewalks out here in front of our church. Other people do that. Some of you maybe say that the, where life happens is at our kitchen, in our kitchen around there. That's, that's where life happens in that culture. In this culture, it's the idea of put them in the garden. So the gods could spend time. That has that idea of made for relationship that's very very important if we're looking at these legs that kind of hold up the why God created the world we're image bearers we're made to represent him we're made for a relationship all of these things are conspiring for that destinational dynamic I have to pause right here and if we're thinking about the destination and your flight path how's your relationship with God how is it is it vibrant only you can tell do you, are you conscious of his awareness in your life? Are you mindful of him? Does what he thinks drift into what you think about things? What did he think about this? How can I be involved here? This idea of relationship is really, really helpful, but as we know it didn 't have the level of vibrancy that we see in two hundred and fifteen for very long but let 's go to another point. The fourth point of, of the legs of the table of this idea: Why did God create the world? I think made to extend the garden. Extend the garden. So when we have there that idea of work it and keep it, then we run into very quickly in verse 18, and the Lord God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now you've heard this at, at wedding ceremonies, and I've got to correct a couple things here. It is true that guys need help. Uh, no problem there. Um, but very often you'll hear that idea that... Um, a guy is lonely. I've actually was at a wedding, um, and I heard this. I didn't say this. I heard a pastor kind of drift off message a little bit, and he talked about the fact that who else is going to cook? Uh, who else is going to clean? Who else is going to do the laundry? And I'm just, I put my head down, I'm shaking my head. Not only have you missed the point of the passage, you're going to get bludgeoned to death after this wedding. A guy could be. No, the idea of not to be alone is, as the garden was meant to expand, because you work it, you keep it. The image here, this metaphor, as it expands. And Adam on his own cannot have image bearers. But with a wife, they can have a child. And that's the mechanism through which more image bearers come into the world. And that's the method through which God's image is spread over the world. That's his representation is spread over the world. That more relationships of people to enjoy God are spread all over the world. This idea its not the would alone making him a helper fit. It's so that the destinational value of the world being a global place of worship could be realized. So that image bearers could be all over the world. And a guy can't do it by himself. Needs a wife. And together, they raise children. And in that context, before the fall, that will necessarily glorify him by their very being. Nothing that they do as much as who they are. Isn't that incredible? Now, when you position that quickly, when you position that into the onslaught on kids in the confusion as to relates to marriage relationships and gender identification. Can't you see clearly how the enemy doesn't like that? The enemy's on scene for all this, by the way. The enemy can't stand image bearers. He wants to obliterate humanity. Why? Because you're stamped with the image of God. He can't stand you. He can't stand anything about you. By the time we get to Genesis 3, he moves. We're not going to walk through the passage. You know the story if you've been here for any length of time. And you can read about it in verses 1 through 11, where the enemy comes in and questions the goodness of God, then positions them in a place in which he tempts them, not with something to eat as much as a new destination. You can be like God. Notice what's happening here. God has a destination laying it out. It's unfolding. And the enemy comes and goes, let's tweak the flight path a little bit. Because this is where you really want to be. You see, sin is this idea that I trust myself. I don't trust God. In other words, the destination is my destination, not his. And so you begin to veer off. They went for the bait. And everything that God had created in those four dynamics changed. The image that we have of God was was marred. The image bearers, still image bearers. But the perception of that destination was thrown off. Ruling as God's representative, creation begins to groan. Everything goes downhill. That's why we have pain in this world. Is because humanity wanted to play God. And since we're terrible at being God, the representation in all of nature falls down. Relationship gets shattered. Extending the garden, that plan is put on hold. Now, the thing that you need to know, this dislocation between the creator and the creation is something that cannot continue. It can't. Because if the enemy wins, the enemy can, can, can rightfully claim to have beaten God. So therefore, right from the get-go in Genesis 3.15, God promises to send a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to bruise his heel, but the offspring that is going to come is going to crush the head of Satan. That sets up this galactic conflict that we see throughout the Old Testament. But what you need to realize for the discussion that we're having this morning, that's the destination. And that destination will be realized. The enemy tries to push it back as much as he can. God identifies the people of Israel. He constantly tries to wage war through which the offspring is going to come. But the offspring eventually does come through Israel, which brings us to our second point. Why did Jesus come into the world? So if we have that first idea of why did God create the world, we've explored that. Why did Jesus come into the world? There's a lot of different things we can say, but one thing we must say is that God's vision for the world never changed as to to its destination. Jesus comes into the world, the incarnate God-man comes in so that he can destroy the works of the devil, it says in the Bible. And specifically... He wants to oppose the working of the enemy in our life so that when people look at self-righteousness that I can be good enough or self-fulfillment that I will live for myself, God's vision for who you are to be can be realized because Jesus Christ had come. Uh, Earlier this summer, I was looking for a way to kill some weeds in my yard and I stumbled across this, uh, thing I'd never realized before, this weed killer it doesn't actually kill the weeds. What it does is it is it blocks the nutrients from the sun in getting to the plant or getting to the weed. So it doesn't kill the weed. It's not interested at all in killing the weed. It's interested in blocking the way the plant is meant to grow. It just simply deprives it of what it needs in order to thrive. So Jesus Christ, knowing that's our situation, that we need a Savior, we need somebody to pay for our sin, comes into this world, and he lives a life, as we've talked about, he lives a life that Adam didn't. He perfectly obeys the Father in every regard. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, Paul says this in this um, grandiose, majestic passage. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, firstborn, meaning preeminent in his value, not in chronological time, but God's firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Isn't that incredible? After all the ways. God intended the destination to be, and we went sideways. God in his kindness and grace sends Christ. Overall creation becomes a human so that he can die on the cross to repair the damage of unbelievers like you and me with his life where well, he never disbelieved. Matter of fact, there's a passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think it's the most eloquent, tightly bound verse in all of the Bible that represents what occurred through the life of Christ on the cross. For our sake, he made him sin to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what's happening here? In relationship to the destination, the flight path went off, Adam and Eve. But God is bending in his grace and his kindness the affections of people back to himself, sends Christ. And now you can, I can, friends, neighbors, coworkers, family can be reunited to God so they can begin on a journey that they were always meant to travel. And that's to follow after Christ, to be reconciled to God. You see, the, the beginning will be the end and we're in the middle. And how is God going to achieve that? He's going to achieve that by people trusting in Christ so that they can regain that relationship. They can have a righteousness that was abandoned because of sin so they can be in that relationship. And slowly, as image bearers, he begins to wipe the grime off our life of disbelief, giving us a relationship with himself through Christ, but now helping us to walk by faith so that people can see God clearly in your life. You can begin to spread the fame of God. You can be live in orderly way so that people know who you are. You can lead well. You can cherish. You can have families that make much of Christ. You see how all of these things are these echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. So it brings us to the next question. Why does the church exist? Why does the church exist? So we think about why did God create the world and why did Jesus Christ come into the world? Now we've got to ask, why does the church exist? And this is where I think we've got a problem. Because there's all sorts of things the church can do, but there's one thing it must do. And that's make disciples. And why is that? Why do we bake that into Our mission statement, we're to spread the fame of God by making disciples of Jesus Christ because you see based on the destination. That's our flight path because as people trust in Jesus Christ and begin to walk in his character and priority necessarily they're made in the image of christ remade They begin to have this trust relationship trusting him in their life and their relationships doing the right thing honoring the things they're supposed to honor standing against their supposed things they're supposed to stand against and in all of those things god makes his presence known in the life of that individual and on this earth his image is reflected in the life of that individual as they've trusted in Christ and begin to walk in his character and his priorities. We see that in places like Acts chapter 11, 19 through 26, in which the people specifically are starting to be called disciples first at Antioch. Why? Well, if you trace the idea all the way back to Acts 2, God's spirit comes down, begins to change people, and then they spread out because of the persecution that happened with Stephen. So people end up in Antioch. The people in Antioch go, wow, they're different than us. They're not like us. Their affections are different. They talk about Christ. They talk about the resurrection. They talk about meaning and purpose and understanding and glorifying Jesus Christ. And the message was so potent that they're not like us. They're Christians. They labeled them with that designation. No one ever stood up in the church and said, let's call ourselves Christians. Are you with me? No one ever did that unbelievers identified the followers of Christ as Christians because it means little Christ. In other words, they say there's something so unique about them, they act an awful lot like and have the priorities of their life like this person Jesus I've heard about. And so it spreads. Do you see from Genesis 1 and 2, right from the early church, this idea of spreading? The church has a unique identification. But I would say in the late 40s, certainly by the late 50s, absolutely by the late 70s and 80s, the church started to shift to think the role of our gathering together is meant to be so people can come and hear about the gospel message. And so let's not teach on the Bible as much as let's identify things that people would be interested in so that we can begin a dialogue with them so they may come to know Christ. Now listen. There's nothing inherently bad with that idea if it wasn't for the fact that on Sunday mornings when the church gathers together, that's not the purpose of the church. That's not. The purpose of the church is to... Be energized by the renewal of our lives in light of what the word says, in the light of the worship that takes place so that our batteries in effect are recharged so we go out into the world. It doesn't mean that people who are far from Christ can't come to the church. But this dislocation, this direction, this flight path that, okay, let's plan the church service with lost people in mind is not true. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 24 and 25. And in dealing with a dysfunction of the gifts and the expression in the church at Corinth, notice how Paul positions the activity that the assembly would be taking, what would be taking place in the assembly. Where it talks about an unbeliever or outsider enters. He's convicted by all. If there's prophecy happening, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Notice this. It's not that the person comes in and goes, yeah, I can identify with anger. Yeah, I can understand better what stress is doing to my life. Yeah, I really want a better marriage. That church has a great teaching on Sunday morning about marriage. Hold on a second. Notice the reaction, the expectation that Paul had when somebody who's a lost person comes in. The way you reach a seeker is by making much of Christ. And when you make much of Christ, people go, Man, I'm missing out. And here's the beauty of it. If they trust Christ, if they make much of Christ, they'll go, he can help me with my stress. He can help me with my marriage. But you don't follow him to get help with stress. You don't follow him to get help with your marriage. You follow him because he's worthy to follow. You know the distinction. You see that there. Uh, The church has um, adjusted the flight path. Doesn't mean you can't have times in which they're specifically designed for lost people, but the gathering the assembly together was never intended to be geared toward lost people. Never. And that's why you've got half of the people in America not knowing the Great Commission. Because they go, it's not my responsibility to lead my friend to the Lord, it's the pastor on stage. I could never pull off a message like that. we got motorcycles and gymnasts and clowns on stage. Man, what a great show that was. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah, and Christ was never in any of it. We as Americans have this ability to amuse ourselves to death, don't we? It drifts into the church. The best thing people need to hear is the glory of Christ. Who he is and what he's done and how they've been dislocated from God. But Christ has prepared a way. He's made the way. He's repaired the damage. This is what you're created for. This is the destination that the world is going for. God will fill this earth with people that will glorify him. Absolutely will. Because that's our purpose. That's how we find ultimate joy. Now, the question is, does the church align with that? Do we align with what he says? And if we adjust off course, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. Now, we want the truth of God's worth to be accessible, certainly. There's times you'll come in here, one of us might use a word, you go, I don't have a clue what that is. Hang around for a while, you'll figure it out. Don't look at everything to go from the top shelf to be reachable, just for you. Just say, is Christ worth it? Are they leading us in a way that that honors him? Because you can make a lot of mistakes in life, but if you're making much of Jesus Christ, those mistakes will fall to the side. So why does the church exist? The church is the obvious expression of Christ in this world. And the church gathering on Sunday morning is meant to be that. A church that begins to plan with lost people in mind. I guarantee you something. The destination has changed. You give it enough time, that flight path has been adjusted, they'll end up someplace they never wanted to be when they first started. Never. It'll absolutely happen and you've seen it over time. Final point, why do you exist? In light of why did God create the world, why did Jesus come into the world, why does the church exist, why do you exist? Very quickly, Jesus says something interesting in when he came, he were meant to repair the damage that had been happening and be our sin bearer. But he also gives us a pathway to follow. In his life, if you look at his life, there are certain values in his life that we recognize and we think are necessary for somebody to mature in their relationship with the Lord. When Jesus said in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth by having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He said that before he went to the cross. So Jesus had a work. By the time we arrive in Genesis 17, he'd completed. What was that work? If you look at chapter 16, is he'd created an environment and brought the disciples to being a place where they are fully trained. In other words, he discipled the disciples, the apostles. That work was now complete. The pathway for what it looks like for making disciples had been cemented in the life of Christ. He'd completed that. Now he goes to the cross to repair the relationship between humanity and God the Father. But that idea that you were created to be a disciple, trust in Christ, and now to make disciples. Simple as that. And as people... Trust in Christ and walk into his character and his priorities. Guess what happens? Who God is becomes down here on earth in the life of us. His character, his priorities. And people begin to see who he is. His fame spreads. And the culmination will be, there'll be a throne of people and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth of those people who have trusted Christ. And God's glory will be radiating on this earth Your joy will be full. His glory will be complete. Do you see how that fits? There's a lot of things we can do, but what we must do is make disciples because that's what spreads the fame of God because God's image is woken in the lives of people in a tangible, expressive way. It says in John 20, 21, after Jesus rose from the grave, he says, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you doesn't mean you're supposed to go to the cross. It means you live the character and priorities of Christ. So the idea of what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to reach people with the gospel. You're a follower of Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, this is your opportunity to trust him. We have people every week who are far from Christ here, and we want to make much of Christ, but we don't want to ever think there aren't people here who need to repent of their sin and trust in Christ. That's your invitation today. And as you go out from this place, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're called to reach people. That's what Jesus did. You're called to build people in the faith as you are being built in the faith yourself, equipped to do ministry. In other words, you begin to intentionally seek to make disciples, to be nurturing people, to be nurtured yourself. The pastors can pour into you, equip you to do ministry. And then we lead a lifestyle of multiplication. Multiplication. That idea of reaching, building, equipping, and a lifestyle of multiplication. So you have to ask yourself, where am I? If you're far from Christ, don't know trust Christ, you need to trust Christ this morning. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you need to move from just receiving to actually now producing. You need to be equipped to do ministry. If you're equipped to do ministry, let us help you develop a lifestyle of multiplication in which you can intentionally fold your life into the lives of people, Lost people and found people so that they might know Christ better, love him more, and trust him more fully. That's why we exist as a church. Jesus gave us the command in Matthew 28, one specific imperative to make disciples. And that's what we do. And his authority has been given to us to do it. And he is never going to leave us. Isn't that an awful lot like Genesis? His authority. Never leave us. We're all moving toward the mission of God to create a global center of worship in the galaxy. You're part of that mission. This isn't just going to church. This isn't just part of being a community group or at a class. Do you realize what's before you? You're part of the mission of God and redeeming humanity that will forever spread his fame in this galaxy. Isn't that amazing? When you're when the purpose of your life begins to shrink down, what am I really existing for? You're existing for this. And as you join in on this journey, you'll find your joy, you'll find your meaning, you'll find your purpose. And that's what we hope to do as a church. We're serious about the mission of God, and we're excited that you're part of this. May this upcoming year, we spread His fame more than we ever have, as the band is coming up. A few questions. I know we've gone over a little bit, but we don't have second hour today. First question, where are you in the journey? Where are you in the journey? And, uh, it's coming up to the, the question. Where are you in the journey? It comes to this. Do you know the gospel? Okay. Spending time is where being built up. Maybe it's time to be equipped. Maybe you need to be discipled. If you've been a follower of Christ for very long maybe you need to disciple somebody else where are you at in the journey maybe you need to adjust that flight path that's the destination is there evaluate where you are in relationship to that second question what adjustments do you need to make in your flight path what adjustments be specific be intentional I need to learn more about this. I need to understand what it means to be a disciple. Students, you're going to be able to find out in parents how we have a discipled person. What do we think a student looks like when he's fully discipled? You're going to hear from Pastor Pat if you've got student ministry kids. Where are you at in that? And if you need to make an adjustment, third question, when will you do this and who can you ask for help? When will you do it? So think about it. I need to be intentionally discipled or I need to start discipling somebody else. And then all sorts of questions. Well, how exactly do I do that? How do I kind of arrange my life? What is the things that I look into? How do I walk somebody through that? Let us help you. Let us help you. Maybe you're a shepherding pastor. Maybe somebody who's poured into your life. You can ask them. Let them know what you want to do. Ask them to pray for you and hold you accountable because here's the thing. We're going to leave from this place. And we're going to say, wow, that was really interesting. Maybe I, You might say, well, I'm just a little bit. That's why we want to help you. Isn't it amazing the grace that our God has, has for us in Christ? Are you overwhelmed at his goodness this morning? I am. Would you pray with me to our good God? We are so grateful, Lord, that we have these moments in which we're able to push back the, the emotional walls in our life that we think that life is about something completely not like this. We have a tendency to buy into the world. That the, the lives we live are meant uh, just to be responsible and be active. We so often forget your mission. And we're part of that. That's amazing. And it's not that we're earning it. It's that you've gifted it to us in your kindness. Put before us, not the vision of how busy this might make our life if we're about this, but how you've called us to it so we'd let things that might distract us fall away. You have a desire to be made much of because that's right, because you are glorious. Help us to see how we can spread your fame and particularly as expressed in your life, Jesus, how we can seek to reach, build, equip, and create a lifestyle of multiplication because this world is lost. We do not know how much time is left, but we do know what the end is going to look like. So we pray now for our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, that you might use us in their life. And may it never be said of our lives that we were too scared or lacked courage because you've told us. All power is in your hands and you'll never leave us. So what do we have to fear? Give us boldness. Give us insight, discernment. Give us courage. Help us to walk in faith. Because Jesus, you are the lover of our souls and we are thankful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.